shed, bike shed, bike shed. <laughs> You're going to do the singing intro now? Hopefully, no. <laughs> do 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 rock and ramen. Apparently, I am doing the singing intro. <laughs> I didn't realize it, but here we are. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot trying to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Steph, what is new with you? Let's see. Uh, So this week, I've noticed in working with a lot of client projects that there's a lot of fun, like new feature development, but often it's a bit of refactoring that also goes into it to figure out what patterns or where in the code base they're feeling bogged down and slowed down. So then looking for ways to improve the existing code base in addition to introducing new feature work. And I ran across a new one that I'm excited about. And it was thanks to Joel Kinville, one of the ThoughtBot developers here. He left a comment on a PR that I happened to be looking at where he called out that someone was using control coupling or that they had introduced control coupling. And that was a phrasing that I wasn't familiar with. So being the wonderful person that Joel is, he linked to it. So when I clicked on that article... It's a uh, ThoughtBot article. It's written by Ben Ornstein, where he talks about different types of coupling. And control coupling is where you... Are you familiar with control coupling? Have you heard of that Not before? Not by name, no. So it's when you pass in a parameter to a method, and you essentially are informing that method of what path to take. So if you have a method that's like print name and you pass in include last name is true. So you're passing in a Boolean value. It's showing that you know that that method is then going to branch and you're essentially telling that method where you want it to branch and how to branch. And that's considered control coupling, which is just really cool to me because I've seen that before and I'm not a fan of passing in Booleans as parameters. One, they can be a bit hard to discern, like what are they doing? And it can also be a sign of duplication where the caller already has insight and knows what needs to be done. But yet it's, in my world, it's micromanaging. Like it's saying, hey, I'm going to call you this method to do this thing, but I already know the job you're going to do. And I'm going to tell you at what point how to make a decision. So that was pretty cool. I've added like some new vocabulary when I'm talking about like ways when we don't want to try to like pass this in. And it just seems like a new cool thing to be on the lookout for when I'm looking at existing code. Like, do we have control coupling here? Can we walk that backwards? So the object has full responsibility for making decisions versus another object having to tell that class what to do. That is interesting. I don't think I've heard it called that before, but the general idea of Boolean parameters and then it almost sounds a li- like adjacent to tell, don't ask, but not exactly, or it's in the same space mm. of like how you're collaborating with another object and tell, don't ask is another, like having that vocabulary and those ideas, just having framed those so that when you're looking at code, you know, another thing to look for, another shape to look at twice whenever you see it in code. I also really like what you were saying about Joel sharing a link when he passed that in, although I'll say that I'm careful with where I do that. I really appreciate when that happens, but I usually won't do it on the first handful of pull requests when I'm interacting with someone because I don't want to come across as overly preachy or, hey, did you know about this thing that people may entirely know about? And so finding the right tone and the way to share that is... I think subtle at a minimum, but I really, really like that as a mechanism for here's a topic and here's like a footnote of if you want more information on that, here's a place that it's well summarized. 
Totally. That's something I struggle with in trying to walk that balance. Mm. I want to be helpful. And if I'm introducing something, like if I mentioned to someone like control coupling, I want to be helpful and provide context because I often will talk to others how I would help myself. And so it's helpful to me when other people might go ahead and share an explanation to go along with it. But I completely agree that sometimes it can come off preachy or it's assuming that the person doesn't know when perhaps that they do. So it's a it's a hard line to walk. So yeah, I often like just have to evaluate how well I know that person and what kind of conversations we've already had. Like, will they know that I have best intent and or I'll often prefix it with the, you may already be familiar with this. <laughs> That's my typical go-to. But then every poll request I write is littered with, obviously you, you probably know this already, but... And so uh, there was a great tweet that a bunch of people were talking about where this is how I compose emails. I write the email and then I go back through and I remove a handful of exclamation points so that I don't seem manic. And that sort of comes across in my pull request as well, where I ask a lot of questions, like, what do you think of this instead? But then the entire thing is just a bunch of questions. I'm like, well, that, that's kind of weird to read it like that. And just balancing that tone and really trying to like achieve the best intent thing. It's a delicate art. Yeah. Although I, w- I will have to say that I really hate the word obviously. And hate's a strong word. So maybe, yeah, no, I'm going to go with it. <laughs> How did do you I, feel about it? Did I say obviously? You were saying it in kind of like a, well, obviously you've probably thought about this because oh. you're trying to give them credit for yes. what I, you I think. Don't think. So I in the way have... you've said it, I don't hate it. But in general, it's a tough word to sprinkle in. I think I was using it as the extreme or the like dialed up to 11 version of over... Uh, uh, characterizing, yeah. so I don't believe I would use it. It's similar to just, where it's just too it's yes. too much at one of the extremes. So I don't think I would use obviously at all. When you said it, though, I was like, wait, did I say that? That's <laughs> I don't like that word. <laughs> I do like that word in some contexts, but not in that context. Sure. Yeah, no, I haven't seen you talk that way on PRs. One of the other uh, interesting forms of coupling that also came from that article that Ben authored is, I'm curious if there's a different name for it, because this one doesn't have the best name for it, (laughs) but he refers to it as pathological coupling. And he's being funny in uh, the article about it. But it refers to if you initialize an object and you know instance variables that are available on that object and you set state for that object. So you initialize it and then you reach into that object and set state for it and then continue on. That's something that I've also seen before. I don't see it very often, but it always intrigues me as like something to dig into to see if I can remove another class trying to set state for another class in that way, just because it seems, again, that very, very like you're trying to micromanage another class's behavior versus trusting that class to do the job. But I don't know if there's an, a different name for that type of coupling. No other name comes to mind, although more generally, I've noticed in my Ruby code over time that increasingly I use adder reader all the time, but I do not use adder writer or adder accessor basically at all. Occasionally, I'll have a purpose-built method that accepts in some data and does something with it. But the idea of some external class being able to set state on me, being able to set a value for a particular instance variable, more and more my my Ruby code is shifting towards functional-ish in shape. And so, yeah, nobody gets to set my state. That's mine. <laughs> I'm in charge of that. And it's interesting as I've, I've noticed that evolve over time for me. And so that is a subset of the coupling that you were talking about, I think. So I, I don't even really run into that much, but that's in my code, which perhaps is a, I don't know, weird way to write Ruby. But here we are. I don't know. I'm, I'm with you because when you said that out loud, I immediately thought that that's typically how I start as well with adder readers then upgrade from there as I need to. 
And then I think you're the one that introduces to me where it's entered my vocabulary, but often whenever I'm adding an adder reader or any sort of attribute to a class, I always start in the private space. And then I say, like, if I'm pairing with someone or I even think to myself, like, it has to earn its way into the public space. And that's one of my favorite phrases that I want to give you credit for, but I, I can't remember exactly the first time I heard that, but I love that phrase of like, it has to earn its way into the public space. I definitely am a big fan of being very purposeful in what enters the public API. The phrase earn it is interesting. Like it's a happy place for it to be. I almost look negatively at things in the public API. Like I want to absolutely minimize that. There's a cost to each thing in the public API. It's surface area that other things can couple to. So I want to have as few of those as possible. And so it's not like it's an earned space. It's a a necessary evil almost. That's too extreme of a phrasing, but that's sort of the mindset I'm in where, yeah, absolutely, adder readers only, private adder readers primarily, hide everything below that private line and slowly bring things up into the public API as necessary. Cool. Well, I'm going to give you credit for that because I still think of you when I think it has to earn its way into the in the public space. So yeah, that's uh, what's been on my mind is just finding new ways to define coupling and point it out to others and also just point it out to myself and look for refactoring opportunities. How about you? How's your week going? Uh, it's going well. Looping back to something that we talked about a few episodes back, I want to say I had been battling with Husky or I had been giving Husky its, its day in the light and allowing it to run on my system. And uh, yeah, no, I turned it off. I, uh, it's funny because I tried to turn it off and yeah. it didn't work. Okay. And so it was still running. So I was extra thorny about that. I was like, oh, you're going to do all this stuff. And then the way to turn it off doesn't even work. It turns out that was operator error. And I didn't know how to write a shell export statement of a variable. Shell's a weird language as an aside. Uh, I was just assigning the values. I wasn't exporting the environment variables. Uh, yeah. But our colleague Will pointed me to the correct way to do that. And so then I turned off Husky entirely. It was ending up interfering with a number of processes. There was Vim configuration that I have that interacts with Git. That was failing, but it was failing in a weird way that didn't say, Husky's doing something wrong. It was just breaking. And then there was also a weird thing that was happening with Yarn that was breaking. And overall, what I found was this is too low of a level for me to be comfortable with it. These are two different ways that stuff is breaking subtly at the edges of my system. And I'm just, I'm not super comfortable with messing with Git. Git is one of those tools that I trust completely, like with no caveats to that whatsoever. Uh, I had to work to get to that place because I had to learn how to interact with Git because it is not obvious. Git does not have the best UI, but it has the best object model underneath. And so I trust it. I know what it's going to do. And using Husky changed that. And that was the main thing that really broke me on it. So Husky no longer gets to run on my system. What was the the magical command? What was the magic environment variable you had to set? Um, I forget. We can link to it. It's husky don't install or something like that. The very logically named environment variables, you just actually need to export them from your shell config as opposed to arbitrarily setting them. Those are different in the shell. So I know you were excited to turn it off. Is there anything that you're going to lose by having it off? Was there any like nice things it was doing for you that you're like, oh, I have to do this manually now? No. I, I think the main reason that folks will use Husky is if other members of the team don't have editor configuration to do things like ESLint and warn about that or type checking or running prettier to reformat the code, then they can get out of sync. And waiting for CI to tell them that is too long of a cycle, so they want to prevent that code from getting pushed up. I have all of that configured in my editor, so I'm not running into any problems with regard to that. I can see the utility potentially on a team, especially with folks that are not spending as much time configuring their text editor as I have historically. But that is not the world that I'm in, me personally. So I'm not necessarily opposed to Husky overall. 
I am just opposed to it running on my machine. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I know one of the former clients you and I both worked on, they had a task that I liked where it was sort of like a pre-CI task and you could run it before you pushed up to CI and it did some like the linting and RuboCop and things like that for you. So it sounds like Husky is just a very advanced version of that, which yep. I do appreciate that, the earlier feedback, but I like your setup the most where you get that linting feedback right away and the reformatting and, and do it earlier versus waiting till you're committing and you're trying to do something else that then you're suddenly seeing output from something else and it makes you shift. Cool. Well, I'm excited for you that you turned it off. <laughs> Yay. I have regained my terminal. Uh, what a win. But yeah, moving on from the topic of Husky, I have been making some updates to my local environment, specifically moving Vim into the 21st century. Ooh, wait, what? What yeah. does that mean? Uh <laughs> Vim is a text editor that started in 1989 and has slowly been making its way into the future. And specifically, the thing that I have recently started using is I've moved to NeoVim, which I had avoided doing up until this point. And then I started using COC, which is the Conqueror of Completion plugin, which is wow, lofty name, but here we are. It seems to be the best language server plugin for Vim. So it's making Vim behave a lot more like VS Code. Can we unpack that a bit? Yeah. What do you say, a language server plugin? Yes. Yeah. So plugin for Vim and then language server being the generic thing that VS Code and TypeScript pioneered where VS Code is a language server client and it speaks to the TypeScript language server. And that means that TypeScript gets to have all of the smarts about the language. VS Code just needs to be able to communicate over this protocol and say, like, what are the completion options at this point in this file? How can I reformat it? How do I go to definition? All of that sort of stuff. VS Code actually doesn't know how to do any of that for any language. It outsources it to the specific language server for any given language. This is an amazingly good idea. It's just one of those examples of well-thought-out architecture that seems obvious in retrospect, and yet none of the other text editors were really doing it for years. Or maybe there is some prior art, and they're building on that. But they've really advanced it and pushed it forward. But the dream was that VS Code's doing this thing, but everybody else, all the other text editors can now take advantage of it if they just implement this same client-server model thing going on. And so Vim has been a little bit slow to get there, but this COC plugin is enabling all of that. And so it does cool stuff, like semantically aware tab completion of variables in TypeScript and things like that. Ooh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's nifty. Okay, so you've got that. You've changed over to NeoVim. Is that a pretty easy shift? It was both terrible and very easy. There was one just like foundationally broken thing when I first tried NeoVim. There were a few different times that I tried it, and I kept running into the same issue. And the issue was that there would be random cues, the letter Q, showing up in my terminal. Not like a control character or anything weird looking, just the letter Q. And it would show up like in Vim when I was in NeoVim, but then it would also persist after I quit out of Vim. It was like it broke my terminal. Huh. And then if you've ever like catted out a JPEG on accident, I don't recommend it, but it makes your terminal go not so good anymore. <laughs> uh, and so it was one of those sort of things where it just like broke it and there were Qs everywhere. Not that many, just some, which any weird random Q is going to confuse you. There was some weird setting in NeoVim that fixed it, but it was just broken for a while, and it wasn't as easy to Google as I wanted it to be. You searched, why is there Q in my editor? I did. My... <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know what else to say here. There's just random Qs. So I fixed the random Qs with the one configuration setting. And then from there, NeoVim has been just transparently a slightly better Vim. 
everything else, like all my other configs just worked. I feel like I probably cleaned up or changed a few other things, but generally it's working better. And the main reason I did it was to get floating window support, which is a feature that is in NeoVim, but I don't think Vim has it yet. But it makes for the more visually pleasing and information-rich sort of pop-up menus. Historically, Vim has had very minimal pop-up menus, but when you think about VS Code, there's like markdown formatted, syntax highlighted, documentation in line, and all that kind of stuff. NeoVim now has support for something like that. I'm trying to think of any pop-up windows in Vim. There's a little P menu, is what it's called. I think it's the preview menu or the pop-up menu or something like that. Um, but it's this you know, little block of text. And it's when you do tab completion, regular tab completion in like Control-N style, that will just pop up a little menu with some lines of text in it. But they're very bare. There's no syntax highlighting. There's no additional information. And there's no room to provide any other documentation. So there's just the one little list of text. Hmm. The new preview windows are much fancier. You can have the fancy stuff on the side, and you can have syntax highlighting and all sorts of other fun stuff. So does this mean that Upcase is going to have a a welcome to NeoVim trail? (laughs) Is that next? I mean, you joke, but we actually have a dive into NeoVim trail on Upcase from years past. (laughs) We have so much on there. I still haven't been through all of it myself. There's a lot on Upcase. I agree. And it's all free. But yes, we do have that trail. It does not have this content because that's new stuff. Potentially we could add to it, but... (laughs) I do love so much that it's free now because that's been so great when I talk to clients. And if someone is new to Ruby or a different topic that's on there, I get to point them to it. And it's not behind this like pay barrier where it's like, oh, if you get permission or if your team will buy this for you, but it's just here for you. It's content. That's, That's so much fun to get to share with others. Absolutely. There was someone who actually reached out a listener question It was about how to get started in Vim, and I replied to the person in the email suggesting some things. One of the things I suggested was the on-ramp to Vim course on Upcase, um, which was myself and Ben Orenstein, and I recommended it without any other caveats. I just said, oh, we actually have an Upcase course related to this. And the person replied like, oh, yeah, the other course I took on Upcase was totally worth it, so this will almost certainly be that too. And I was like, oh, I didn't even mention it's free. This is so much better. You thought I was trying to sell you something, but I'm not anymore. I used to. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just trying it. to be genuinely helpful. Yeah. But actually, I think that's an interesting question. So let me read the listener question. and We can talk a little bit more about like, I don't know, do people still use Vim anymore? Yeah, let's chat about that. So Matt from Sydney wrote in and said, Hi, Steph and Chris. After listening to various episodes and reading articles like Write Good Commit Messages by Blaming Others, and we'll link to that in the show notes, I'm almost willing to consider learning Vim parentheses and tmux question mark and vimscript and and then a bunch of other question marks if i'm comfortable with adam and some clipboard history from alfred is it worth the learning curve i probably should be asking someone who started more recently but where should i even start when it comes to switching vim regards matt so what do you think steph is it worth switching to vim is vim worth it you know the part about that that got me most excited is the good commit messages Like the rest of it, like switching to Vim, like that's awesome. Like I'm personally a, a big fan of Vim, but what really got me excited is just that is a really great article that talks about the value of good commit messages and how to be able to look them up quickly. And it just really like highlights like how helpful it is when other people take that time to capture what happened in a change. So yeah, that part is awesome. So I think if I think back to when I started to use Vim, it was for a couple of reasons. I switched over to Vim. Because at the time, uh, I was using Sublime, and Vim was free. 
So that was one reason I was interested in it. The other reason was because the cool kids that I was with were using Vim in my mind. (laughs) Cool kids. Take that as how you may. And it was also, I was, I think I started using Vim when I came to ThoughtBot. Prior to ThoughtBot, I'm pretty sure I was a Sublime user up to that point and Sublime was doing great, but I really liked what I saw other people doing in Vim that I couldn't do in Sublime. But nowadays there's also Atom, there's VS Code. Both of those are also free. They also have a lot of the features that I would want from Vim, although I do still feel most at home in my terminal. And one of the other reasons I switched to using Vim was because I wanted to be able to run terminal commands without having to switch between Sublime and my terminal. I think there's plugins for Atom. I don't know about VS Code where you can actually, I've seen it in RubyMine where you can run terminal commands from the editor or command line commands so you don't have to like switch back and forth. So that kind of negates that one as well. I think for me, it comes down, this may be a weird comparison, but it comes back to mechanical keyboards a bit in the sense that I can use any other keyboard. It's gonna get the job done. It's gonna have a lot of nice features to it and it'll be fine. But I really like the configuration and some of the more like effort that I can pour into Vim because I feel like it is going to improve my workflow because I can customize it more highly to myself. And it also does have a smaller footprint in my machine. Like if I have Vim to get it up and running versus if I have VS Code or if I have Atom that I need to start up. Although I haven't opened VS Code or Atom in a long time. I don't know if it would if it really still has like a longer boot up time than Vim does. But oh, that's yeah. kind of like a by minor a, point. By anyway. a lot. It is? Oh, yeah. Okay. Vim's like almost instant, depending on how many plugins and things you have. But those are all spinning up an Electron shell. So they're going to they're gonna take a few seconds to do that. So one of the other reasons I like Vim is it makes me very cognizant of all the key strokes I'm having to make to get a job done. And it encourages me to not use my mouse. Those are probably two of the big things that I also really like about Vim. But then there are also Vim bindings for VS Code, for Atom, for any of the editors. So if you want some of that workflow, but you don't want to have to worry about configuring your editor, then sure, you can also still include that. So I guess that's why I circle back to kind of the weird comparison of mechanical keyboards. It's like, well, do you enjoy like going that extra step to have this capability to configure your workspace? Like, do you want that customization control? And for me, the answer is yes. Yeah, how about you? Do you think it's still relevant? Because you, I think you've used VS Code more recently. I poke around with VS Code from time to time, mostly to get a comparison point and to see like what's the high bar of where we can get to with regard to tab completion and semantic analysis and things like that, because they really are leading the charge on that front. But yes, I definitely still think Vim <laughs> is relevant. Um, it's a layup question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Overrated or underrated? Never can have enough Vim. <laughs> um, I absolutely love Vim. Vim fits my workflow. And some of the things that you were saying about being in the terminal, that definitely rings true to me. The terminal is it's the most honable environment. It's the most like I can keep sharpening it. I can keep refining my workflow and I've slowly built up just enough knowledge of how to use awk, uh, AWK, that command line utility, and AG runs there. And I can also use grep, and I can use sed, and I can use all of these other things, and I can put together shell one-liners, and I can do all of that. And so I like being in that environment. Granted, VS Code has a terminal within it, so you can use that. But there's something to me different about, is my editor in the terminal, or is my terminal in the editor? Those feel different. And I really like having my editor be in the terminal. I actually have a plugin, Vim Tmux Runner, that I use that allows me to interact from Vim with an adjacent terminal pane. So I can open up IRB in Ruby and be writing code in Vim and then send it over to that other pane for evaluation. 
And the way that those two work together, mostly with Tmux actually combining it all is really fantastic. So part of my reason for loving Vim is actually Tmux. So to the question of like, do I need to learn Vim and Tmux and all these other things? If you're going to learn Vim, I do think Tmux is worth going that extra level. That said, if you're the sort of person that none of this sounds appealing to and it sounds like a lot of work and will get in the way and kind of just be annoying for you, I think it is absolutely a very good idea to use VS Code. VS Code is a fantastic editor or a bunch of the others. Um, personally, I'm most intrigued by the work that's going on in VS Code because I think the way they're approaching the language server stuff is most meaningful. And then otherwise, it's got all the bells and whistles that everybody else has, as far as I can tell. I will say also, the all the other editors do have Vim key bindings, but they're not the same. It's the uncanny valley, and they make me so uncomfortable. It's like when you're in a dream and you're running, but your legs don't actually know how to work. And you're like, I'm pretty sure I know how to run, but my legs are just made out of jelly right now. Yeah, I guess I haven't used that recently that I'm, I'm not experienced with that. I feel like I've been able to do the basics when I'm pairing with somebody. But then every time I can't do something, I'm just like, well, because sure, I'm not in my environment. I've never really taken the time to figure out, like, what could I do with the key bindings? There's definitely some more foundational things. The difference, I would say, is in VS Code, there are Vim key bindings. Within Vim, there is a language for editing text sounds like an overly pedantic thing for me to say, and quite possibly is, but I really believe in that. I like Vim has a fundamental philosophy of editing text as the core thing. Every other editor starts with inserting text, but Vim flips it around and says, no, you're going to be editing more often than you're going to be inserting. So being able to move through a document is meaningful. Being able to construct changes and then repeat those is actually a really meaningful thing. And it's, it's deep baked into the foundations of Vim. And that's the thing that keeps me with Vim for years. That's the thing that like, I feel like I can keep refining, keep getting a little bit better at. And personally, I just really enjoy that. I won't say that it makes me more effective when you consider all the time that I've put in thinking about Vim and configuring Vim and writing Vim script, which is just such a complicated little programming language. But I really enjoy that. I really enjoy having that much control over my workflow. There's actually a talk that I gave a while back at a Vim meetup we hosted here at ThoughtBot called Mastering the Vim Language, which I still stand by. It still feels true to me and still captures my feelings about Vim, I think, best. So yeah, we can link to that in the show notes as well, but that captures that side of it of Vim still is the best Vim out there. Vim key bindings are not quite the same, but again, they're perfectly fine if you want to be in VS Code, like absolutely no cool kids club shaming whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's one other thing that I do locally that some of the editors, like they may have cool features now that I'm not aware of, but I can handle a lot of my branching while I'm in the terminal. Like I just feel like I'm closer to everything that I want to be close to. And it's just right there is easy access. So I think we've decided that Vim is still relevant. At least you and I certainly feel that it's still relevant and we enjoy working with it. So I've had a couple client friends as well that they have migrated over to Vim. And it is interesting, the folks that I've seen take on the endeavor of learning Vim usually stick with it. And it may be one of those, like as you start to learn it and you get past that like first couple of days of where you feel less effective because you're learning, I haven't seen many people go back to it. So that's just an interesting data point to me that there is ramp up time. But then once people start to use it, they also seem to really enjoy it, even with the configuration hurdles that come with it. I also really like with Vim, I'm getting sidetracked. I just keep thinking about the things I like with Vim. <laughs> There's uh, the dot files that we can store. Mm -hmm. So then that way I can store my dot files, my configuration, and be up and running on any machine very quickly. Although I wonder if that's true. Like, I wonder if you could export like starred 
plugins for Atom or VS Code or any of those. Like, I wonder if they have a similar capability where it's like, if you know you're changing machines and you have a specific configuration for your editor, could you also get up and running with VS Code and Atom quickly? Because that would be cool. And if they don't have it, then I would put that in the win category for Mm -hmm. Vim to have that. I love the plain text configuration and the way that that all works. I think there is a way to do that with VS Code, although I'm not sure. But they definitely, there is an extension, which is an extension syncing extension. And so basically, similar to like how Chrome can sync your bookmarks and all that sort of stuff, and you just log in on the other one, and now it's all oh, shared yeah. happily. So they have a okay. thing that manages it. But I deeply value the, I can go to GitHub and look at somebody else's dot .files and read those and crib a couple things and take them over and put them in mine, or also the fact that I can share that out with as many people. Like, I spent a bunch of time figuring these out. I want as many people to get value out of that as possible. So I do love that aspect, and I'm not sure that VS Code has that portion. So then circling back, so yeah, we decide it's relevant. <laughs> yep. And then you mentioned some really great ways to get started. There's upcase videos. There's also the the talk that you gave. Do you have any other suggestions? Um, have you helped anybody ramp up with Vim recently? Not recently, no. But historically, on-ramp to Vim, which is the upcase course that we have, is very much designed to be that this is your first week of Vim. This will give you the foundations. And I certainly believe that starting with a more minimal Vim configuration is good. There's plenty of room to scale that up over time and add all the plugins in the world and write thousands of lines of Vim script if you want to waste a lot of Saturdays. But maybe that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like how you got wistful when you said that. Yeah. Like, maybe that's just me. <laughs> but I think that like on ramp to Vim, we designed it to be enough on its own. And then the other talk that I gave, it's much more of an advanced talk, but I don't think it's something that you shouldn't watch until you're far along. I think it's the best summary as to why it might be worth it to go through the effort of learning Vim. Like, why are people into Vim at all? I tried to answer that in that talk. So depending on where you're at, if you're unconvinced, that talk might be the right thing to look at to see if you even want to put in the effort. And then I think on-ramp to Vim, I'm obviously biased, but I think it's quite the good introduction to Vim. Nice. Yeah, I think when I've helped others on board to Vim, the key things that they needed right away, there's syntax highlighting, there's a capability to search that needs to be set up. And then what are some of the other ones that I'm missing? I think those are like the two main things that folks really need to get up and going. Oh, and disabling arrow keys. I find that's another <laughs> another fun one that if, if you don't, like you will continue to use the arrow keys and I totally get it, but you're then it's going to prevent you from getting over that hurdle sooner. So that's also one of the things that we do first is prevent the usage of arrow keys and, and force or remind. It doesn't force. Well, it does force, but it also reminds you. <laughs> it has like a quick message. It's it like, friendly hey. enforces the not use of arrow keys. Use other keys to yeah. move around. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, a number of the folks on the project that I'm on right now, which is TypeScript and other things. They had switched over to VS Code, but slowly everyone is coming back to Vim. Really? Uh, and we've had a couple of pioneers within the small team that I'm on figuring out the, the configuration and how to get the TypeScript stuff all working correctly. And now, I think at this point, we're all back on Vim, all four of us that are on the same project. We're all back in the land of Vim. And it's uglier and clunkier, and that's always probably going to be true, but it's interesting. That's a trade-off that we all seem very happy to make for the wonderful language of text editing. So yeah, thank you, Matt, for writing in. Obviously, Steph and I seem to still be fans of Vim, and uh, it can be a great investment of time. But it's fine to use VS Code and anything else if that seems right to you. And then hopefully some of those resources will help you get started so you can check it out. Indeed. So yeah, I think we have one other listener question. We've been a little bit uh, behind in getting to those in previous episodes, but we're catching up now. 
Yeah, we have such a great list of listener questions. I'm glad we're circling back to some of them in this episode. This question comes from Mike. Mike wrote in, I very much enjoy the podcast. I mostly agree with your approach to software development. However, a declaration you made recently that you would push as much as possible down to the database gave me pause. Mike went on to include some helpful context about why that would give them pause. Mike specified that they would favor delegating constraints such as like uniqueness and simple triggers for timestamps and associated stored procedures to the database, but they're reluctant to include complex application-specific validation and complex stored procedures. So I think Mike is curious as to exactly what we would push down to the database and if we would also try to push down some of those additional complex validations to that level. So to bring this back up to a higher level for just a bit and to bring context, I think this was based on a previous episode where you and I talked about wanting to have the database, pushing down some of that complexity down to the database layer. Do you remember exactly what we said during that episode? I don't remember exactly which episode or what I said, but my guess is it was in an episode where we were talking about the active record PG enum gem, which had just recently come out. I saw it. I was really excited about it, and I was expressing my excitement about that. And I think I offhandedly said something like, I want to push as much as possible down to the database. But I actually agree with a lot of Mike's clarifications here or questions where he's saying, like, I'm not sure about this edge. So, yeah, there is a lot that I want to push into the database. And I've noticed for myself... I've slowly wanted to move more and more things into the database in terms of query logic, in terms of constraints. I guess a better way to say it is I want to leverage more of what the database has and do less in my programming language, but not to the point of pushing application logic deeply into the database. Yes, I like how you said that last part about not pushing application. Because, yeah, I think that's the part that Mike's interested in looking for clarification is that while we want to leverage all the benefits that the database will give us when it comes to uniqueness constraints, also materialized views is something that I haven't been leveraging the database as much for, but I've been using it more heavily, I'd say within like the last six to 10 months on projects that I've been working on. But storing that type of logic at the database level is a type of stuff that I'm also looking to hand over to the database and keep it there. For the application logic, it is interesting. I don't think I've seen an example where someone has tried to push application validation down to the database layer, except where we're trying to make sure that values are unique and we're trying to prevent bad data from getting into our database. But I'm trying to think of a good example of like a business-based validation that we would do just in the application, but we don't actually want SQL to try to check for us. The only simple example I can think of right now is if you're validating that an email is correct. Like we're not going to have SQL runner regex that's checking the email format. We're not? I think you're right. But now I'm thinking, like, could I? (laughs) Uh, Although I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but the actual regular expression that defines a valid email is very large and troublesome. And the best recommendation that I've seen, I think it's a blog post, but it's something to the effect of what you should look for is at. As long as you see the at symbol, call it a day. Don't go any further because a false negative in terms of that validation is worse than Like, I don't know, weird emails are going to get in there anyway. But yeah, I agree. I think in the Rails world, we tend to lean on the database less. So there's, I can't think of a Rails app that I've worked on where there were any sort of stored procedures or more complex logic in the database. I think that's more common in other communities. But frankly, I don't have a ton of experience with those other communities. I think I've seen it in some like Microsoft.net shops using SQL Server. Because I think SQL Server as this proprietary unique thing people in that world tend to leverage it more. I don't know that they're even necessarily using portions of SQL Server that are not standard SQL, but 
that's just my anecdotal sense on that, but I don't actually know. But definitely the Rails world, we don't even use views or anything like that much. That's true. I think one of the, the funkiest things that I've seen get to the database layer is where someone is storing code at the database level, and then they are executing that code. No That's... one would do that. <laughs> Someone has done it. <laughs> Many people have done that. Uh, it shouldn't do that. I would recommend against that, but weirder stuff has happened, frankly. So yeah, definitely not pushing everything down to the database uh, layer, but trying to still lean on the features that the database will offer us and trying to verify all the data that we're storing, but still trying to keep the business logic. One of the points that Mike mentioned that I really appreciated is they also try to keep some of the validation stuff out of the database and keep it in the application layer because that also helps with code comprehension. And that is a nice point. Like as you're going through and looking at the application, you don't have to hop over to your migrations or into the database to understand what data is going to get rejected versus you can actually read the code to find out what's happening. And it's also checked in to get source control. So that's really nice too, and we can track the changes. So there are definitely some benefits in keeping certain things at the application layer and not pushing it down to the database. I agree with that, although I've found myself over time, and I think this is a Derek Priorism, if I don't care about having a user-facing message for, say, a validation, like a presence validation, I will actually not implement it at the model level and only implement it at the database level. Ooh, yeah, I like that. And that sort of goes in the opposite direction of, of what we were just saying. So it's interesting thinking through, because like the first thing you were saying sounded true, but mm -hmm. then I think about this other thing that I have in my head. Well, and that one's a fun one, because when you add validations, it's communicating to someone that you want to show a helpful error message to this, but if the user doesn't have a way to trigger that error in a meaningful way where they can do anything about it, then it's confusing. Like, why are we spending time trying to craft a helpful error message for this when there's no reasonable state for which the user is going to see this? And if they do, they can't do anything about it. So that almost comes down to like a communication preference for me. Is that how it works for you as well, where you just prefer to put it at the database level? Well, I would always implement it in the database level if it's something that I want to be true in the application. And then I might also introduce it in like the Rails model layer. My ideal would actually be having a type system that can express these sort of things such that we can have a guarantee that the data is in a certain shape at that level. So like having a maybe value in Elm as opposed to just like a maybe string instead of just a string. This is a string that may or may not be present. And now that's encoded into the type system. I know it to be true versus if I have a string, I know I have a string. It is there. It's definitely present. It is not null. There is no null in Elm, which is cool. Yeah, I like that idea that we are evaluating the data before we actually get to the database layer because the database is really like our last line of defense. Like this is at the point which if we haven't guarded against something, it's going to get into our data. But the earlier we can start guarding against that before we get to the database layer, I'm a fan of. So types also seem like a great way to guard against that. And then after types comes validations. And then after validations, you're at your last line of defense. It's interesting. I think of it as the first line of defense. Really? Yeah, because in terms of data going into the database, it is the last line of defense. But I, I spend a lot more time in apps that read than write, I guess. And so I'm thinking about consuming the data from it. And what do I know to be true about this? Do I know that it is present? Do I know that it is unique? Do I know, you know X, Y, and Z, other things about it? And so the database is the start of that truth chain, if you will. Is it a defense if you're reading? I'm getting into semantics. <laughs> What's this podcast for, if not that? <laughs> to get into the lower level stuff. <laughs> yeah, I guess I was thinking of defense because then you're actually like inserting something into it. And in your case, you're relying on it to be a source of truth. 
Yeah, either take I like, though. Like one, you want to reliably know that it is a source of truth that you can trust. And then the other one is you want to guard it at all costs to make sure it stays that source of truth that you can rely on. Yeah. And I guess I don't want to have to trust anyone to do the right thing, which is why I think my original comment that started this whole thing about I've been leveraging more and more of the database functionality. I think I said something to the effect of I want to push more into the database. What I was referring to were things like enums, so an actual Postgres enum, as opposed to a string or integer column that has known values. So if I can actually express that in a PG enum, that is better. It's a more correct representation, and I can confidently say more about that data. Similarly, uniqueness constraints, those are great. Presence, so null, not null constraints on the database. That's a specific type of constraint as well. Partial unique indexes, those are a nifty thing. Foreign keys, love foreign key constraints. Know that the other thing is actually there. Transactions is a really interesting one. That's something that earlier on in my career I wasn't using much, but I've come to value so much to say this group of changes will all succeed together or all fail together. There's never an intermediate half-implemented state. And that is just such a valuable thing to have. Knowing that that can be true frees me up to think more clearly about the like domain stuff that I want to do. And I don't have to worry about guarding against all of these other potentially invalid states. I actually just learned about a cool new one that I've never used, but I'm really intrigued by, which are called check constraints. Oh, I haven't heard of those. These are little conditions that you can add to the database layer to say, like, make sure this is true when I'm writing this data. And so you can actually reference other columns when you're doing it. So you can say, we have a start date and an end date on this table. And I want to make sure that the start date is before the end date. So you can add a check constraint and tell Postgres to actually execute a little bit of comparison logic there and make sure that that's true. I wouldn't want it to be the only place that I express that, but I'm intrigued by the idea that I could know that as a certainty. And Postgres is the closest thing I can get to certain in computers. So that's why I like Postgres so much and why I want to push stuff there. But That's cool. So using those, like that might start to change my behavior a bit and thought process around certain validations. Like trying to think of an example earlier, a simple one with the email stuff. Like you brought the good point of like, maybe we should be validating that at the database layer. And I don't have a good reason to not do that. So yeah, it kind of brings in more ideas as like maybe there is a little more application logic that with those, what'd you call them? The check constraints? Check constraints, yep. That we would start to push some of that logic that makes sense down to the database level. And again, if it needs to be user-facing, then we would probably have to re-implement it at the application level or in like the, the code of the app. Although I would really love for a framework that could directly reflect those. It's like rather than on Rails having to say validates presence true, what if I just had a null false in the database and Rails could reflect on the PG error, this record is has a null value here, and turn that into the human-facing error. Same thing for a check-in stream. What if I could express that in a way that I could say, like, start date must be before end date, but only implement that once at the database level? That seems nifty. Interesting. So if it's already at the database level and then you have it bubble up to validation I want Rails magic to generate the form errors when somebody incorrectly fills out a form, but based solely on the database constraints. Only have to implement the constraint logic in that one place rather than also having to repeat it at the validation within a model space. Yeah, I'm just thinking through it because I think I like it. Mm. And I'm trying to imagine a real world scenario of where that is, as long as I can still add validations for the ones that I don't actually want at the database level, but I want because they're more form specific versus like, I want to do a check that like, this field is based on this field, but I don't actually need to do that sort of check at the database level. Are you sure you don't need to do that at the database level? I think so. Because if it's more of like a logic check, 
versus like a data integrity check, then that mm. may be something that I want to do at the forum level that my database doesn't care, but like the user flow cares about this. So that's where I'm trying to discern between those two. Like there's application logic that's more focused on the user, but doesn't necessarily like impact the data that's getting into the, the database. Right. So this specific version of a workflow wants the data in a certain shape, but that's not fundamental to how the data should be stored. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, I'm obviously going off the deep end here, and uh, I want to just put everything in the database. That's what but... this show is for. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, coming back to Mike's original question, I think he was surprised by what we had said. And so I totally agree. I don't want to put lots of application logic and stored procedures in the database. I definitely don't want that. What I do want is to leverage all of those wonderful features and more and more so over time. If I notice I have queries that pull a bunch of data out of the database and then filter through it in Ruby, I've done something wrong and I wanna push more of that query logic into the database because it's better at that than Ruby is. Yes. Although I do love enumerable. Enumerable is the best little way to work with collections. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mike, for the excellent question. And I hope Chris and I clarified our intent around the things that we would like to push down and leverage at the database layer, but then also keep at the application layer. And for anyone else that has questions, uh, please send them our way. We love getting listener questions and we'd love to have more of them. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It helps other folks find the show and it lets us know that you care. We've added a link to the show notes so you can head directly to the Bike Shed page within iTunes to add that rating or review as easily as possible. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.